This morning I want to talk about a love story, but it pales in comparison to the love story by Jesus Christ. But I want to talk about one that happened between a man and a woman. It's her warm heart that one day gave him cold feet. The story's in Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, as you join me for that Bible study in that text this morning in the book of Ruth. And while you're turning, I would just like to share some true stories with you about individuals who were in love, deeply in love, but they wanted to do something unusual in their proposals. Now, in the book that I'm reading from, the author says, let me give you a little bit of advice if you're making a proposal, a wedding proposal. Number one, don't propose to your girlfriend in front of her parents. Number two, don't put the ring in anything that is set in front of her for her to eat. It's, the article went on that said the last thing you want to do is have to propose to her while you're being wheeled into surgery. Okay. Don't, number three, don't propose marriage two days after meeting her. Some of that is all really simple and understandable. But all of a sudden, now we get into some ways that people have proposed. One lawyer made a deal with several policemen to arrest his girlfriend on totally bogus charges. They worked out the plan to stop her car, arrest her, and drive her to the city jail. Once incarcerated, they informed her that she could make one phone call. She called her lawyer boyfriend, of course. He came down, was taken to her cell, and that's when he told her the only way they would let her go is if she agreed to marry him. How romantic, huh? Another guy was so shy, he didn't quite know what to say when the moment arrived. He got all tongue-tied after he pulled out the ring box. He just froze. Then he he tossed the box to his girlfriend and ran away. She caught the box, saw what was inside, and chased him down and said yes. Here's one. Another young man pretended to have died. He planned the entire visitation at the funeral home with his buddies who worked there. He was all laid out in his best suit. His girlfriend stood by the casket sobbing when he suddenly sat up and asked her to marry him. After she finally stopped screaming, she slapped him and she said yes. They both need some serious counseling, I tell you that. Here's one for you. One guy lived in a different state with his girlfriend surprised her with a plane ticket to visit her to visit him when she arrived a limousine was waiting for her the music playing over the car system was actually a compilation of their favorite songs she was taken to a high-end store where a rack of dresses and boxes of shoes were waiting for her personally handpicked by the guy she chose her favorites then was driven to a salon for a three-hour treatment massage manicure pedicure hairstyling makeup Following that pampering pit stop, she was taken to a resort hotel, transferred to a horse-drawn carriage, driven around a small lake to the entrance where more than 100 candles lit the red carpet path. Violinists began to play a song this guy had actually composed, and as she walked the red carpet, he appeared at the top of the stairs and began to sing to her. When she stopped, stood at the top step, he dropped to one knee, and then a huge board behind him lit up with the words, Will you marry me? Before she could answer, he stood to his feet, sang the finale to his original love song, backed up by a 45-piece orchestra. When she said yes, fireworks exploded in the sky above him. He makes me sick. Okay? That's just... Come on! 
it just made the rest of us look bad. Okay? Now, this is my type of guy. This is where I would be. There's one more proposal worth mentioning. A couple had bought an old, repossessed house, um, understanding they were going to get married and this would be their first home. They didn't have much money and did all the repair work themselves. So, they spent so much time working on their little house, they often walked the aisles of Home Depot. In fact, there were times when they were too tired to work, but they would just stroll around Home Depot and dream out loud of what they wanted to do next. When the time came for the marriage proposal... The young man arranged it to be done at? Right? There you go. He phoned his girlfriend, told her to meet him there that night, and when she arrived at the store, the manager directed directed her to the home and garden section where a table had been set up with a candlelight and a takeout dinner. He he sat her seated, got down on one knee, proposed with a potted plant that they could use in their house. She gushed out yes, and all the Home Depot employees cheered. That... That's real life, okay? That's where it's at. Now, let me give you a really strange one. Let me give you another story that's really bizarre for a proposal. Ruth chapter 3. When Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens you you have been? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself, therefore. Anoint yourself. Put your raiment upon you. Get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall mark the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lay down. He will tell you what you shall do. She said, this is Ruth saying to her mom-in-law, All that you say unto me I will do. She went down unto the threshing floor did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid herself down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for you are my near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God, for my daughter, for you have showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as you follow not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to you all that you require. For all the city of my people doth know that you are a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am your near kinsman. Howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman, okay, let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of the kinsman to thee as the Lord lives. Lie down until the morning, and she lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another, and... He said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the veil that you have upon you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it to her on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law's house, she, the mother-in-law said, Who are you, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. Isn't that a strange proposal? Isn't that just an odd one in your mind? Let, let, me, let me just clarify. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But I don't think that you should make this your dating practice. Okay? Going to the threshing floor and uncovering some guy's feet. Okay? In fact, don't make this the way that you're going to do a marriage proposal. 
But there are principles in this story that are worth understanding and are worth elaborating upon. In fact, there's a whole lot more in this story than about a dating relationship, about a marriage proposal. There is some really deep truth here that we, all of us, can walk away with that we can really engage with. So in order to get the best out of this story, let's set the scene. Some of you haven't been here when on Sunday evenings we had in earlier this summer, we have been talking about this story and we have been going through it verse by verse. So let me catch you up on where we're at when we come to Ruth chapter 3. What had happened is there was a couple that lived in Israel and they had two little boys. Their name was Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And so they lived in the land of Israel in Bethlehem region, near Ephrata, which by Bible standards, that was the best of the areas of Israel for crops and grain. It should have been a really fruitful area. But they were struck by a famine in Ruth chapter 1. It was a famine of discipline because this is the day of the judges. This is a time when the Israelites were doing every man did that which was right, in his own eyes. And so God punishes the people to try to bring them to repentance and he has, he has the famine stri- strike the land. So this couple that's living in this prosperous area, they're concerned about what they're going to do. They move to a country nearby, the country of Moab. If you had been here when we talked about that section, it was forbidden for the Jews to go to Moab. It was the taboo spot. But they went ahead anyway. And so this couple goes there, and when they get there, they live there for a period of time. Elimelech, the the father, the husband, he dies. The two boys now are teenagers. They get married, but then after a short time, they die. They don't have any kids. So now what's left of that family that has suffered disciplines for doing what is wrong, all of a sudden, there's just the two Moabite women that the two boys had married which they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to marry Jewish girls, but they had married these Moabite gals. And so mom, Naomi, has these two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And so Naomi hears that there's blessings back in Israel. The famine has stopped. And so she wants to get back to the land. And she talks to her two daughters-in-laws and she says, why don't you go home? Go home to your moms. And she says, go home to your gods. If you look in chapter 1. Well, the one finally goes and says, I'm going to go home to family. I'm going to not go back to Israel. But Ruth insists on staying with mom-in-law. And Ruth insists that she's going to follow. And, and Naomi stops arguing with her when, she see, when it says she saw that she was steadfast in insisting to go along. And this is where you get that famous statement, your, your, your God shall become my God. And so it's between the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law that she says, I'm going to go with you. And so they are headed home, headed back to Israel. This is going to be a new experience for Ruth. Ruth's the Moabitess. And so they're headed back. And when they get back, Naomi is greeted by relatives that haven't seen her for years. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Do you remember what Mara means? Bitter. It's the word bitter miserable idea. And she says, I'm just bitter. And she makes this statement. Now remember, her daughter-in-law is standing next to her. She makes this statement. She says, I went out full and I have come back empty with nothing. What does Ruth want to do? I think most of us would want to go, hey, yeah, what am I? But that's where this woman's at. This woman is just miserable. And even though she has a negative attitude, it comes out in the text 
She says it in a couple different ways. She says, God hath done this. God hath brought me back. The Lord has disciplined me. And she makes it very clear. She believes in the providence of God, in the hand of God working in their life. So if there was something that is stressed in the first part of the book of Ruth up to chapter 3, it would be this thought. This one singular thought, not the only one, but a major thought that I want you to catch this morning. That there is this providence of God. There is this hand of God. There is this idea in Scripture that God is sovereign. What I mean by that is this, and I want to define the term how I'm teaching it. Okay, What we mean by God is sovereign, He is ultimately in control. What we mean by that is this, He has authority over all things, over all events, over all people. He is sovereign. He actively is involved in this world, the world that we live in. He is sovereignly working in this world, providentially moving. But I want to quantify this. He is able to do whatever he wants to do. He controls whatever he wants to control. Okay, that's sovereignty. He can control as much as he chooses to control. He can let some things go. And he can just keep them in a certain path. But, for instance, God doesn't control you in all moments. If God were totally controlling you at all moments, you would not do wrong. Okay? He desires that nobody would do sin. And yet that nobody would go to hell. So God is in control, and yet in his control he allows for free will. At moments he allowed for an Elimelech and a Naomi to walk away from the promised land and get themselves in trouble. But he is still sovereign enough to say, I can bring you back. I can create situations where you're spanked and you come back to knowing what's right. So we see in this story time and time again the providence of God, the hand of God working. Now, how's that seen? How's that seen? Let me just highlight a couple things. We already pointed out God judged Israel. He controlled the, the crops. He controlled the weather to withhold the rain, just like he said he would. He could set a famine. He could punish a nation. He says that, or Naomi says that God chastened. Go back to chapter 1, just so you understand this concept of what she's going, what she believes. She makes this comment. She says to the daughter-in-laws, would you tarry for them, for my next generation of sons, if I could have them, till they're old? Would you stay with them? Then look at the middle of verse 13 of chapter 1. It grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. She understands events have happened because God is manipulating. God is working. God is giving her a God spank. Chapter 20, or verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again. God worked it out that I get back home. God moved in the sense of I was destitute, and all of a sudden I hear about the famine being released. She says, God is at work. Even though that I had done wrong, God is at work in my life. And she says, God, he brought me back the, the rest of the chapter. Seeing the Lord hath testified against me, the Almighty hath afflicted me. God is bringing me back. God in his grace. And it's just so happened, coincidentally, ha ha, it just so happened to come back at harvest time. 
And the story goes on that they're back when there's a harvest time. And once back in the land, they do what widows do. Widows who have no family members, they often would go to the fields at the edge of the harvest and at the side of the field where the grain wasn't cut down, they were allowed, the, the, the Lord had made this a part of the law, leave a portion along the borders that the widows could come and they could cut down the grain and that they could have their own grain, their own fruit, their own breads that they could get. So they would get what's left over at the sides of the field. Well, they come back when it's harvest time. So the Jews who are following the word of God, they come back and there's part of a field that's there. And it's for the widows who could come and get some to help themselves to survive, to work for, to provide for themselves. And just so happens that when Ruth goes out to do this widow gleaning, she happens to stop at a field that's owned by Boaz. Just so happens to be That's the field she goes to. Well, it just so happens to be Boaz, according to chapter 2, is a relative of Naomi and Ruth's. Well, however the tie is, I don't know. But whether it be your cousin, a nephew, whatever, we don't know. But he's a relative. She just so happened to come at harvest season at the same field of this man who later on in chapter 3 is going to be called the Goel. The goel. It's, it's a Hebrew term that basically means this idea of somebody who is a relative of yours who can help you out in the worst of times. A goel is an idea of a relative who would rescue you from problems. The idea of a relative who would redeem you. Here, let me give you the passages that talk about it. If your brother or relative becomes poor, sells part of his property, then his nearest re, uh, relative could go and get that property back into the family's name. And remember, again, property and family passing down, very important in their culture, that it would stay in the family. But if you were so hard up that you had to sell it, somebody could come and rescue your property, your family inheritance. That would be a relative who would be your goel. He says in Leviticus elsewhere, if your brother becomes poor and sells himself to slavery, to a stranger, to a foreigner, your relative would be the one who would come and rescue you would redeem you so that you wouldn't stay a slave. So people who are in hard-up situations, they want to go well. And Ruth and Naomi, they go right to the spot, just so happens, they get to the property of somebody who is a legitimate goel, a relative who could help them. Now, to take a step further, there is a part of this that's talked about in the book of Deuteronomy that seems really odd to us. We thought going and uncovering some guy's feet was weird for a proposal. This one gets a little bit weirder. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no children, no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family of a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go unto her, take, him, take her to be his wife, perform the duty of the husband, and the first boy that is born shall be named after the husband that has passed away. So it goes on, he says, that the name be blotted out. And if a man does not wish to do this, now I, I think this, you know, I think if this were happening today, if this were still in our practice, I would have won ahead of say in whom my brother's married. Right? Because there's a possibility that I may end up with that, that wife. Okay? So then he goes on, he says, but what happens if, it, if the guy doesn't want to do it? He says, the brother's wife then, 
you know, will go to the gate of the city to the elders and say, my, husband brother, my husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. In other words, he won't marry me. He refuses to marry me and take care of me. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall speak to him, and his brother's wife shall come up in the presence of the elders, take off his shoe, and spit in his face. That's tough. That is, you know, those are weird customs. But that was Bible for that day. Please don't run with it for today. Okay, just don't. Don't even bring it up. Okay. But you have to ask this question. This is an important question. Why did God do that in that time, in that area? It was really a wisdom part of God. God set this up, one, to provide and protect for widows. Because remember, lifespans are different, especially for men. They were shorter lifespans. This would make sure that the ladies were protected in that society. It also has the idea of property inheritance. That's not us. But in Bible days, in the Jewish land, property rights in your tribal territory were extremely important. You were tied to the land. This would protect your family inheritance, your name, your family property. As well, it would protect genealogies. Again, we're not big on genealogies, so this is weird to us. But back in Bible days, genealogies were extremely important. Knowing who your ancestor was, knowing that you're in a certain family line. And so this is very practical, very, very protective of ladies and of family lines and properties back in those days. It makes sense for them. By the way, there's also this for us today. We'll look at this in two weeks, the day we have communion. We're going to talk more about it. This becomes an illustration of Jesus Christ. That idea of a kinsman redeemer, somebody who is able to rescue peoples in trouble who are related to him, somebody who looks and says, relatives of mine of mankind have been sold into sin and I have the ability to redeem them and come and rescue them. That's Jesus Christ for us. Who gave, who's, we, they sang about a little bit ago, that written in blood, that idea that Jesus loves you so much, he gave his life, he died, buried, and then he resurrected in order for you to have forgiveness. That, that's part of this story. It, it illustrates Christ's love for you. But back to the story, the sovereignty of God, they go to the land of Boaz. Just so happened to be, he's the guy who's related to them. He's the guy who has the wealth enough, owns property. He could help them out, but he gets there. And it just so happens, the very day that Ruth shows up, she's gleaning along the edge of the field. Boaz happens to show up at this particular field that day. Just so happens. Just so happens that he notices Ruth and says, who is that? And they say, that's the Moabite woman that came back with Naomi. And she, everybody knows that she's helping Naomi. She's protecting her mother-in-law. She gave up her own family. She gave up her own God. She comes here, become a proselyte Jew. She's here and she's helping. He says, oh. And he just so happens they have lunch together that day. And it just so happens that as time goes by, they become in conversation. Oh, by the way, Boaz is an older man who has property, who's a really good guy, a really sweetheart of a guy. He walks up to the people when he comes to the field and he says to his workers, the Lord be with you, the Lord be with you in a day when nobody talked about God. Remember the book of Judges. 
But he was this cheery guy. He was this outgoing guy. He was this guy that treated people really kind. He said, make sure you allow for the widows to work across the property. Don't, don't get so much of my, my crop that we don't help out the poor people. He's a good dude. And he's got money. And he's got character. And he's still not married. It just so happens he's not married yet. After years. When he would have been a good catch for anybody. And it just so happens that he invites her to stay the rest of the harvest season. And he, then he gives her a gift, tells the servant to make sure she gets a gift of some, some 30 pounds of grain. Enough to hold them over through the rest of the harvest season and maybe a few months. But then you have the question of what happens after that? Because now as we enter chapter 3, the season of harvest is done. There's no more gleaning at the fields. It's all d- taken care of. They have enough to hold them over for three, four months. But what then? What then? So the hand of God has been working. The hand of God has been moving all along. The hand of God is seen in chapters 1, 2, and up to the end of chapter 2, where God's hand is clear that God can providentially correct erring children. Give them a God spank. Bring them back. Help them to get right with him. Clearly, God is sovereign and able to do that. And he does that even in our lives. It's also clear that God can provide for his children. He can provide miraculously or he can choose to provide like he does for most of us in the mundane ways of life by giving us the opportunities to be able to work. Giving us the opportunities to have people who would employ us. Giving us the opportunity that our needs are being met. The hand of God. The hand of God in your life that way. Time and time and again. But also to bringing things together so that in the long run, All these events work out that she just so happened to come on that day, the day that he shows up, they become friendly, and it just so happens he is in line to be a goel. The providence of God. Okay, that God works and manipulates things. I think that's a real stress point of the chapter. But that goes along with it, a stress point is not only his providence, but the practices of the saints. You see, the providence of God should not freeze us to doing nothing. The providence of God should free us to take some action, to do our part. God can provide, and God might open up doors for jobs. You got to go to work. You got to make application. God gives opportunity for you to get education. You got to study. You got to do your part. You know, God may bring somebody into your life, then you got to do your part of developing, cultivating that friendship. You know, God in his providence gave you kids that were specifically for you to be raising. Now you got to do your part. And so instead of being frozen or freezing us, God's sovereignty, God's, God's moving should free us to do our part. Well, here she is. Ruth has been saying, God chasing me. God brought me back. Oh, she, when, when uh, I'm sorry, Naomi, seeing that. And the night that Ruth comes home and I was in the field of Boaz, Ruth is like, uh, Naomi is like, really? Boaz, I know him. He's a relative. Woohoo! maybe. Matchmaker, matchmaker. Here she's gone. It's working in her mind. She can do something here. And so what she does is she, in this text now in chapter 3, which we already read, here's where it starts going. She says, I'm concerned about your rest. We read that in verse 1. 
I'm concerned about your rest. Now, she's the older woman, and she says, i got to do something for you, my daughter-in-law. You've been in the fields working, but I'm concerned about what happens after I'm gone. You're a Moabitess. Will people accept you? Will they kick you out? I want you to have... And the word she uses is, I'm interested in your Manoah. I'm interested in your security, your future. And so mom-in-law is going to give her advice that has the idea of how can we plan for the future. And so what she does is she sees that God is working and she says, okay, let's do our part. God has arranged this. Let's see what happens. And I want to tell you what you need to do. I want you to do this. I want you to dress up. You know, make yourself look good. Maybe, maybe take off the widow garments. Put on something that is attractive. And I don't want you to do this. I want you to, as well, go to the threshing floor. That's where Boaz is going to be tonight. And when you, when you get there, I want you to do this. And she's told her as well, she says, I want you to put on the perfume. I want you to smell good, look good. And when you get there, okay, don't make yourself known. Just watch what happens. He's going to be there. He's going to be busy. They're going to be working all day. And when it gets nighttime, and he goes, wait until after he eats. Is there wisdom in that, ladies? The way to a man's heart through the stomach? Okay, Yo, don't talk to him beforehand. He might be hangry. So don't bring up the big stuff until you've, he's eaten. And then when he lays down and he's fallen asleep, I want you to just sneak in there quietly, lay by his feet, uncover his feet, and wait. And so she tells that. She tells him to do this. It's weird. I, I don't know about you. I just gonna, that's weird. Okay, that's just strange. Yeah, if, if that had ever happened in college, that Deb showed up and just uncovered my feet, it would have been just, I mean, seriously, who, who wants to uncover feet at the end of the day? Yeah, after working in the field. And so what happens, and let's set the, the threshing floor would be like this. The, the, you're the field, the threshing floor is elevated, and around the edges we would put some mounds of dirt, and we would take all the grain, we'd put it here, we would stamp on it, we would hit it with boards where we'd have oxen walk over it. We're trying to separate the grain from the rest. And then we would throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow away and do it later in the afternoon. You do it in the afternoon and the evening because that's when the wind would be blowing at this time of the season. So in the morning, you're getting a cut, you're putting it here, and in the evening, you're working through the evening until it gets dark. And you're getting, what you'll end up with is the final, the final product is what you're going to use for making the breads and the different things. And so it's a lot of work. You're going from morning until night. And then what they do is when they do the threshing floor, okay, they would sleep there. The men who are working would sleep there all night. There's a reason why they would do that. It's protection. It's protection of crop. Why? It's the day of judges. You got marauders. You got thieves. It's a real, and, and people are, there's, there's a lot of criminal activity during judges. So they're going to sleep there because they got a bumper crop. And so when they sleep, by the way, they would sleep with their head by the mound and their feet sticking out. So the threshing floor is round and it looks like all these spokes of men with their feet protruding out. You know, from that area. And so the mood that the people would be in would be what? What's that? High alert. Good. Would they be, would they be grumpy? Well, some of you would say, yeah, because they worked. But what would their spirit be? Let me, let me rephrase that. Last Sunday night. Last Sunday night after we had such a wonderful neighborhood night. What did you feel like? You were tired, but... Yeah, was it exciting? 
to go home and say, that was so cool. Let's do it again next year. Okay. Um, But there's an enthusiasm. This is a great crop and we're going to protect this crop. And so they eat and they're drinking their, their, their beverages and there they are. Now they fall asleep and she waits till after midnight because now they're really conked out in the middle of the night. You know where most of you are, you know, midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock. And so he's sleeping and she comes and he's one of the spokes in the wheels. His feet are out here. She comes and she lays down and uncovers his feet. And so I got to ask this question. Mom-in-law, what are you telling her to do? It's just weird. But remember, she's actually telling her to follow Scripture. Not in the details, but in the principle. In the principle, who would approach the city elders if, to get somebody to act on Goel? I read it from Deuteronomy. The wife, the widow woman. The widow woman was supposed to, to do some initiating here. And so telling the daughter-in-law, you go and you make this aware to Boaz, there was a biblical format for this. She was able to go and initiate some of this conversation. She was able to make it known that, you know, I'm related, we're related, and would you be my go-well? And so what she's giving for advice is basically mom-in-law is saying, let's practice the Word of God. Let's, Let's put feet to the Word of God. Let's see if this is what God is actually doing. So here we have the providence of God, but we have to do our part. We have to do something. And so Ruth does it. Ruth goes down. We already read how Ruth goes to the threshing floor. She waits until he's done eating. He's marrying. He falls asleep. And he's sound asleep. And all of a sudden, he wakes up and says, Who are you? Why would he do that? Why would you do that? When all of a sudden you're sound asleep, and then you open your eyes, and there's a kid staring right in your face. Yeah. And you're shocked. Okay, so he's surprised because, one, these ladies aren't supposed to be there. And there's this gal there, and who is she? It makes perfect sense that he's surprised by all this happened. And Ruth, with humility, she responds, quiet humility. She says, I'm your hand servant. Respects. And she basically says, spread your skirt over me, you know, for I'm your handmaiden. And some of you are immediately thinking, this is a risque encounter. Spread your skirt over me. Uh, what is she asking him to do? Okay. Part of the reason we do that is because in our day and age, whenever you have a love story, what does Hollywood throw into it? They throw the sexual part in. And it's just such a part of our culture, and we think that. And as well, we understand that there can be natural desires if there was a, an attraction. So there is that possibility. And the account leans towards that they're falling in love. They're having an attraction towards each other. That he's learned about her. He's been talking about her. The whole city tells me that you are. He mentions that. And so there's that possibility. But in, and in that day that they're living in, would sexual encounters be common? In their day? Ah, how did men treat the ladies at times as a sexual tool? You read that in the book of Judges. That's why they had battles at times. That's why the Levite cut up the woman because what did the city want to do? Just like the city of Lot. They wanted to abuse her. And so they were living in a culture where ladies were really put down in the day of Judges. They weren't respected You had men like Samson going around, and they were just being attracted to the physical, the physical, the physical. And so here you have in this story, you have an addition to it. If you were a Jew reading this story in those days, you would have immediately thought, she's a Moabite. Hanky-panky happened. She's a Moabite. That's what Moabites do. Do you remember where the Moabites came from? 
the Moabites are a, gen, are a, a nation of people that they have their beginnings all the way towards, back towards Abraham's family. Abraham and his, son, his nephew Lot, they separated. Lot ended up in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He has several daughters, some of them marry, but then one of the angels come and say, get out of the city. Remember, they have to flee. And only two of his daughters go with him who are unmarried and his wife, but what does she do? She turns back, she, and the city's destroyed. She becomes a pillar of... Okay, so from the girl's point of view, they think the whole world has been destroyed. So they're in the mountains with Dad, just the three of them, and the two daughters get this goofy idea in their head that they need to propagate the generations by getting Dad drunk and Dad having relationships with them. And the first daughter does, and she births the beginning of the Moabite people. The beginning of the Moabite people, their history is incest. Bad, bad relationships. Generations go by. Moses is leading the people in through the promised land. And the Moabites don't want to help out the Israelites. They hire a prophet who has a donkey who talks to them. Balaam's donkey. And he tries to curse the Israelites. He can't. Do you remember the story? Okay, so what does he say? He says, tell you what, I I can only bless, bless, but I'm going to give you advice. Have your women seduce the men of Israel. And if you seduce them and use your sexuality and pull them away from worship of the Lord, that's the Moabites. That's their history with the Jews. So if you're a Jew in that town, you would be looking cross-eyed. Ladies, you would be looking at that Moabite woman And you wouldn't want to leave her out of your sight. Because what she might propose to your boy is your man. And so here this story brings this Moabite woman who comes to the threshing floor that some people will assume right away that it's in her genes, it's in her background, it's in her culture to use a sexual advance. But we know from the story that's not true. That's not true. Let me make sure we are clear at this story what happens. We know that they remain pure in their conduct. We know it for several reasons. One, the words that are used in the text. In the text, it makes it clear when he says, cover me with your skirt, your talith. This was a custom that was done in their day and in days that followed that during a wedding ceremony, the groom would take off some part of a cloth, a garment. It could be his suit coat like this. And he would put it over the shoulders of the woman that would signify what? She belongs to him and he's going to provide and protect her. It was a custom to put a garment during the course of the a wedding ceremony. By the way... When the word that she uses, the word that she uses, put your skirt over me, is the same word that shows up earlier in the book when, when Boaz says, may the Lord cover you with his wings. May the Lord cover you and take care of you with his wings. And later on, she's basically saying, would you cover me with your, same word, wings. By the way, She's asking Boaz to become the answer to his own prayer in the story. Interesting thought. And by the way, what happens here is when he says, lie down here and then stay here for a while, there are two possible words that are used in the Hebrew that would be very clear about what's happening. The one for lie down, rest, 
is a very innocent term. The other term would be lie, let's lie together, let's embrace or let's have other relationships. They use the love, louver love. They use that word specifically here, which talks about an innocent just rest. Then you have this idea of Naomi. She's giving her counsel to do this. Think this through. Think this through. Why would Naomi tell her daughter-in-law to use your sexuality to catch Boaz? Think, think it through. Naomi is at the mercy of a relative, Boaz. Will he help provide for me? So if she advises her daughter-in-law to go and seduce him and he refuses, where does that leave Naomi? That leaves Naomi in a real lurch. Naomi's got a problem. And Naomi can accuse her of trying to propagate something totally bad. So Naomi's not going to do this. In fact, in, if she tells her daughter-in-law to go ahead and do this, and, and her daughter-in-law gets caught in dabbling with sexuality, her daughter-in-law can be killed. Then what does she have? And if Boaz does dabble and follow into something that's bad, he, and it, he could be stoned. Ruth could be stoned. Then Naomi's in real trouble. Naomi's not giving this advice. All of this is just, it, it, she's not telling her to use her sexuality. Then you've got the character of Ruth that just highlights this. Ruth has already come. She's left her people. She's left her past. She's put it behind her. She's obviously, she's not husband hunting. He says, he makes a comment. He says, wow, loving kindness that you're showing that you haven't chased after the younger men. So she's not doing this. She's not flirting. In fact, he says, everybody knows in the city that you are, and he makes this comment. What does he say in verse 11? Boy, she's what type of a woman? Virtuous? Is that what you have? Okay. That she's a virtuous woman? Doesn't that word flick your mind to another passage of Scripture? Anybody? The book of Proverbs, what chapter? Who can find a... It's the same thing. You know what's really interesting? Okay. What's really interesting? In ancient Jewish Bibles, this section of the scriptures that were called the writings, you know what they would do? They would end with the book of Proverbs, and guess what the next book was? The book of Ruth. Isn't that interesting? You're reading Proverbs 31, who is a virtuous woman, who can find such woman, and guess the next chapter you read? The virtuous woman, Ruth, is your example. So we know that from her, that her devotion to God kept her pure in her conduct. Then you got, got Boaz, same type of thing. Here we go. He's a godly man. The Lord be with you. Keeps on talking this all the way through in the evil day. This is a day when ladies were not treated well. But if you go through this book, he speaks well to the ladies. He provides for the widows. He's a caring man. And he even speaks to her. And what happens is when she says, will you be my goal? He said, I, I, I'll do it. I'm glad to do it. And so we know that in the Old Testament times, if the Goel would have physical relationships with this woman, the foreigner, before, before they were married, then all of a sudden there was no possibility of marriage whatsoever. And this guy's very sensitive about following God's word. Because in this story, he's very caring, he's careful. Then, and he says to this woman, he says, stay here. Now here's where some of you struggle. He says to her, okay, lie down here, stay here. I'll, I'll, tomorrow I'll get this underway. 
but you just lie here and stay here. But then before dawn, and before they can start recognizing people, he says, and knowing who's who, and the guys start waking up, he says, you got to go, and that's when he gives her food to go. Why does he have her stay for those few hours? It's not a sexual thing. It's safety. It's common sense. You don't want this woman that you're caring for going out in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, you could have... You could have people who would do her harm. You could have animals that do harm. Remember, there's still lions in the land. Samson, during the book of Judges, he fights with a lion. She could be killed at night. So he says, stay here because he cares for her. But then he says, I care for our, both of our reputations. Before the other guys are waking up, you need to leave. And so go, I'll give you some, uh, some food, you know, take home. We don't want to start false rumors. And so he says, you know, I'm very concerned about this. But he makes a comment to her. Okay, he makes a, you know, he says, I'm going to follow the word of God. He responds to her, her proposal, the thing that every woman wants to hear. He says, Ruth, I'll marry you if nobody else does. Will you marry me? Yeah, if nobody else does. I mean, that, but that's what he says. I will marry you, but there's, a, there's another guy who's closer in lineage. And if he says no, then I'll say yes. Here's a guy who wants to closely follow the word of God, what it said. He wants to keep to the letter of the law. He wants to follow it carefully. So this guy who's doing that carefully, he's not going to violate it with, his, with an impure and improper conduct that could lead to their death. And then you got the care. We, we just say, okay, they're both very caring. They're both very loving. He doesn't take advantage. And so he gives her some food, and he makes a comment. He says, you have shown great loving kindness a second time. Earlier in the book, he talks about how you showed it to your mother-in-law. Now he says the second time. Is the second time to him, or is he saying you're caring for your mother-in-law anyway by providing? I don't know. There's different debates about that in the latter end. But again, here's what we've got. Here's what we've got. If you were going to highlight the practices of the people, here's the practices that stand out. You've got this. You've got they operate by the Bible. You've got this practice. They maintain their purity, just like the Word of God would say. You've got this practice. They show real compassion and care for one another. Time and time again, the Word of God says that we're to love one another as we are, we do ourselves. But then you have another one. At the very end of the story, the end of the chapter, you have them living by daily faith. Because what happens here is he gives Ruth food, sends her home as a parting engagement gift, and when she gets home, it says she comes home, it's early in the morning, and when Naomi, you know, Naomi comes, you know, it's, it's, it's this faith aspect, and we can just talk about it, that this wasn't risque, but it was very risky. This whole thing that's happened already during the last few hours, what if, what if Boaz would have said no? What if Boaz would have been embarrassed? What if, what if, what if, what if? So they're operating by faith. We'll do what the Word of God indicates. We'll make a proposal. We'll do it this way, and we have to do some things by faith. So then they, he gets to home, and here's a question that some have. They say, wait a minute, um, Naomi says, who are you, my daughter? And there are some who say, well, the reason that Naomi is doing this is she got woken up pre-dawn and she's groggy. Okay. I think there's a possibility of a different rendering here. I think it's like Naomi has been concerned. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on all night? She's proposing. I wonder if what's going on. And when Ruth comes home early in the morning, she doesn't totally unrecognize her because she calls her my daughter. But she's saying, who are you? In other words, 
Are you Mrs. Boaz or not? What do we call you now? Did he say yes or not? And so here you got it, you know, that whole idea. And she's asking this question. And this is where faith really steps up to the plate. Because they show the food and it's interesting and they're excited about the food. Sudden, what next? And what does Naomi basically say to her at the end of the chapter? Naomi says, verse 18, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall. Sit still. We have to wait. What are we going to do? Nothing. We're going to sit here and wait. And wait. You just proposed. You don't know the answer. You don't know what's going to happen. You've done all that you can do, and now you wait. Is that tough to wait? Let me, is it tough to wait for the doctor's report? Is it tough to wait to find out, did you get the job or not? Is it tough to wait to find out, did she say yes? Did she say no? Is it tough to wait, a boy or a girl? Is it tough to wait at times to just, what are you going to do, Lord? How's this going to work out? And the chapter ends. It doesn't tell us what the conclusion is. You know what this reminds me of? The old TV programs. Do you remember how they used to do old TV sitcoms and serials? They would do this. They would ask questions. What will become of old Naomi? Will Ruth and Boaz ever marry? Or will, re- will she remain single the rest of their life? Will Boaz's feet ever warm up? <laughs> Stay tuned until next week. Another episode of... As the threshing floor turns. <laughs> or, or you have the idea, y'all. Harvest times at Bethlehem. Whatever it is. We're left hanging to wait to see what's next. What's next? So, let's do this. Let's just bring it together. And then we'll wait until next week. We could, some of you are saying, there's got to be something out of dating I can get out of this passage. Yeah, I, I could go through and I could give you all kinds of different things on dating that we could talk about. And we'll probably do a little bit of that next week. There's a real deep, deep truth here. The bigger truth. And it goes back to just what we've given you for point number one, point number two. It goes this way. We've said that there's the providence of sovereignty of God that work in this passage. We said there's the practices of the godly that go in this passage. They operate by the Bible, purity, they're loving. We said that they're operating by faith. Let's combine it together and let's bring it all to home. What is this text, how does it apply to us today? How do we bring it? Those who truly recognize God's sovereignty will live by God's standards. Those who recognize God is sovereign will live by God's standard. You will live a more pure life this week if you remember God is sovereign. You will live a more compassionate life if you remind yourself day after day, God is sovereign. You will have a more concerned activity for others if you remember God is sovereign. God put me in this spot for a reason. You will remember to live by faith. If you remember God is sovereign, you will better live by faith this week when you have to wait on the Lord. So the bottom line comes to us that says, okay, what do we do with all this? Let's just make it, let's make it a, a statement of activity. Therefore, remind yourself that God is sovereign so that you live like a godly saint. Remember that God is sovereign so you live like a godly saint. I would challenge you this week. 
Remind, put, do something. Set, set something on your watch, on your phone, that would ring every day that just reminds you, God is sovereign. I need to live like a godly saint. Put a note on your fridge. God is sovereign. I need to live like a godly saint. Put something, you know, pin something to your socks. You know, God is sovereign. I need to live like a godly saint. Put it in the front of your school book. God is sovereign. I need to live like a godly saint. God is sovereign. You need to live like a godly saint who follows the word, who has faith, who's compassionate, who maintains purity.